0: been a good week, hadn't it? Wow. Um, obviously, uh, a good week if you're a Red Raider. Um, if you know me, I'm a pretty big fan. But probably despite all the victories and things that took place this week um, as a Red Raider fan, the highlight of my week is on Mon- was on Monday night uh, at the Elder Invite meeting. I got home, Terry asked me, well, how did it go? I said, well, there were 25 guys in a room all looking at God's Word together and sharing some really important truths with one another, and so I can't imagine it being any better. (laughs) Such a blessing. It really was a great time together, and I'm already looking forward to the next one in April. So if you missed this last one, Tanner Bruffy, then we'll see you in April, all right? We really are hopeful that the time is, is profitable for the folks who attend. But I just want you to know, on behalf of the elders, man, it was a huge blessing for us just to sit around the table together and look at God's Word with each other. And, and so I'm grateful. Uh, One of the exercises that we did, actually I gave it before the meeting and asked the men to work on it in preparation for our time together, was straight out of my seminary class early at DTS uh, taught by the late Howard Hendricks, Bible study Methodist class. And one of the things that he asked us to do as as his students was to look at Acts 1-8 and make as many observations of that one verse as you could. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts 1-8 because I want you to get a feel for this. Sounds pretty straightforward, Acts 1-8, make as many observations as you can. But what we come to learn as we spent time in uh, Dr. Hendricks' class was that as a seminary student, we were required to make no less than 50 observations of Acts one one verse. So if you're going to make that many observations of one single verse, you better notice some of the small details that you might otherwise overlook. Uh, Details like the three-letter word, the. For when it says, when the Holy Spirit. Not a Holy Spirit, as in one of many. But the Holy Spirit, as in the one and only. That's a really important observation. We also learn that hidden behind seemingly insignificant words were some really important promises. For example, when Jesus says, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In that statement, Jesus is making an unconditional promise to his disciples. He's saying that when, not if, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will, not might, you will be filled with power. And what is true for them is equally true for us as his disciples. We also know in this verse, because we've been looking at it in our study of Acts, that Jesus, is prom- Jesus promises His disciples that you will be my witnesses. And He says that it will happen in Judea, or Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and we've seen, as we've looked at the story of Acts, how that continues to unfold. That God is before going before them, preparing good works for them to walk in. He's even working in the presence of persecution to carry out the mission that He said they would fulfill. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. You see, when we look at the little details throughout the book of Acts, we begin to understand that this is more than just a historical account. It's even more than a story of how the church was born. This is a a story. This is an account of the power of God at work through the faithfulness of His people to carry a message of salvation to the world. We've seen how the disciples have been highly motivated because of what they have seen and heard. They have laid eyes on the risen Christ. They have seen Him face to face. And so this eyewitness account has made them into a, a bold witness for Christ. We see that all throughout the letters. In fact, just listen in, in uh, the letter that John writes, 1 John chapter 1. Just listen to the conviction in his voice as he talks about the message of Christ. He says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, What we have beheld with our hands, handled concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has been manifested to us. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. There's an uncompromising conviction in those words because of what they've seen, because of what they have heard, because of what they have touched. They have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They have heard the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They have touched the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the conviction from which they speak. And it's that same conviction that we see in Saul for the very same reason. He saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus. But as strong as that conviction may be. It does not necessarily translate into an easy life. In fact we looked at last week how God promised Ananias. That Saul would suffer many things for the sake of Christ. As we'll see this morning. That suffering began immediately in his ministry for Christ's sake. He he quickly encounters discouragement, and devastating news. And yet, in the midst of it all, God continues to be sovereignly at work. God uses those difficult moments in Saul's life to strengthen his faith, to deepen his trust, to comfort his heart. And I don't know about you, but I need a little bit of all those things in my life. In fact, I need a lot of all those things in my life. And I don't know of a person in this room who wouldn't say the same thing. So before we open up the Lord, word, let's ask the Lord to do those things in our heart that we see him doing in soul. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to you, we do pray that you would strengthen our faith. We need that because there are moments where we doubt, where we feel weak, where we are shaken. Lord, would you deepen our trust? So that in those moments, we wouldn't cling to false idols of security and other things, but we would cling wholeheartedly to you. Our only hope and sufficient for all our needs. And may that comfort our hearts, knowing that you're with us, that you're for us, that we belong to you. Father, would you work through your word this morning to accomplish these things and the hearts of your people, as you did in Saul's heart as well. We ask this and look to this as we open your word together. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter nine, and let's pick up where we left off last. I want to start in uh, the second part of verse 19, where it says, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, speaking of Saul. Saul. And immediately Saul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. And as all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? Who who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding those Jews who lived in Damascus. By proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I want you to notice the inflection that I put on the phrase that Paul spoke when he went into the synagogues. I believe he said Jesus is the Son of God. Because everything he'd done up to that point was to say that he is not the Son of God. But now, having seen the risen Christ, having put his faith in Christ, having met with the disciples and entered into the Fellowship of believers, he is proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. In fact, I want you to say that with me Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He's the promised one. As we talked about last week, that synagogue was filled with people who were fully expecting Saul to walk in there and intimidate and interrogate the Christians. But that's not what happened, is it? Instead, what happened was instead of refuting the claims, Saul affirms the testimony of the Christians and he begins to tell the story of risen Jesus Christ. Later in Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at one of those sermons that Saul preaches. And I think what he says there is very similar to probably what he says right here in Damascus. In fact, I want us to look there. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 13. Over in verse 23. Let me catch you up to what he's done up to verse 23. He spent time talking about how Jesus is the one who's fulfilled the promise made to Abraham. The promise made to Moses. The promise made to Isaiah. The promise made to David. Okay, So he picks up with David here and he says in verse 23. From the offspring of this man, speaking of David, according to the promise... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, Why do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, whom the sandals of his feet I am unworthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, those who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, recognizing neither Him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling the, those these by condemning Him. In other words, the Bible said that exactly what happened to Jesus was going to happen. And by condemning him, they are fulfilling what the Scripture said would take place. Look how he continues in verse 28. And they found no ground for putting him to death. There was no reason to kill Jesus. But they asked Pilate to help them and to execute him. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we, because now he, Saul is a witness as well, preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children. And that he raised up Jesus. And it is written... In the second psalm, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Three times in this part of Saul's sermon, he says three times, Jesus fulfills the promise. Jesus fulfills the promise. Jesus fulfills the promise. Three times. Saul is saying Listen to me. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Everything God promised has been fulfilled in Him. That through Him, we have the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. If you'll look back at our passage in verse 21, it says that all those hearing Saul continued to to be amazed. And I think the big reason they were amazed is they could not comprehend the words that were coming out of Saul's mouth. It's not what they expected to happen. They weren't lining the streets to enter the synagogue in order to learn more about the Bible. They were there to see the condemnation of the Christians. But instead, Saul was proving they were right that Jesus is the Christ. And that's not what they came to hear and yet despite all this resistance from those he was speaking to it says in our passage that Saul kept increasing in strength I believe that's because Saul was growing in his faith from listening to his own sermons and I know that's true (laughs) because the very same thing is true for me. I teach you every week from the things God is teaching me. Every sermon is a lesson in the things that I'm learning. I'm convinced in my own heart that teachers always learn more than the students that they're trying to communicate to. And I believe that's what's happening here with Saul. Notice that it says in verse 22 that Saul is proving... Jesus is the Christ. Now, one of the ways we can look at that and say, well, he's probably talking about the eyewitness account. He's proving it because he saw him face to face. But that could be easily discounted by those who believe. What cannot be denied, what cannot be denied is all the myriad of ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises. And remember, Paul or Saul is... A Pharisee. No one knows the Old Testament better than him. No one understands the Old Testament promises better than him. And so each time he, he, he taught, he connected yet another Old Testament promise fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus Christ. He could go all the way back to Abraham and see the promise fulfilled that Jesus is the seed of, of, of Adam ultimately who would crush the power of Satan's control. That was a promise. And Jesus fulfilled that promise. He could look at the promise to Abraham and know that the promise is that there would be from his seed one who would be a blessing to all the earth. Jesus fulfilled that promise. He can look at what happened in Egypt with the Passover lamb and he could say, that's Jesus. He is the Passover lamb who protects his people from sin's curse. He can look at the promise of Emmanuel. That promise that God is with us. And you can look at Jesus and you can say, yeah, that, that's Him. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact represent, representation of His nature. And when you see Jesus, you see God. That promise has been fulfilled. And the promises go on and on and on. I didn't even talk about the prophecies of Isaiah or the covenant commitment to David. In fact, most scholars say that there are at least... 350 Old Testament promises fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about that for a minute. 350 promises over a 1,500-year period of time, all collectively fulfilled in one person. That's not a coincidence. And that's why Paul, in recounting, As an Old Testament scholar, all these promises fulfilled continued to grow in his faith day by day. I think his faith grew stronger with each sermon he preached because he was increasingly convinced of the truth fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Look at how he continues in verse 23. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now, before we unpack this uh, section here, I want us to spend a little bit of time understanding the, the words, when many days had elapsed, because many days very likely is three years, The reason I say that is because of Galatians chapter 1. If you would, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Paul, the apostle, in his missionary journey to the Galatians, writes of the account that we just read in uh, chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to just follow along with me as he uh, speaks to the church in Galatia. and Listen to what he says, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor did I, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism well beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia, returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas or Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, I know that we don't know all the details of everything that happened during that three years, but here's what we do know. Paul must have had some success in ministry while he was in Damascus because in verse 25 of our passage it says that he had disciples. People that he had led to faith, people that he had discipled in the faith. But something we need to understand about Saul's ministry at this time is that there were far more, far, 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 far more people who were against him than those who were with him. And very possibly, that's why he ended up in Arabia, a desert, a very lonely place, a, a waterless, dry desert not somewhere you go for a little r&r you go to escape opposition and very likely that was what was happening with Saul so here he is think about this a new convert to Christ excited to share the stories of how the old testament promises are fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ only to be met with opposition people who refused to believe people who were out to kill him Maybe you felt a little bit like Jeremiah called by God to preach to a people who would not listen to anything he had to say. Because instead of believing his message, they tried to take his life instead of listening to his sermons, they wanted to silence his voice. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Saul, this is discouraging. My zeal is being met with direct opposition and I'm discouraged. And yet, in that season of disappointment is where God would deepen his trust. Saul learns to rely on the Lord in what I call the classroom desert. If you think about it, there have been a lot of people who have experienced God's training ground in the desert. When you look at the testimony of Scripture, think about David. Spent lots of years running in the desert from King Saul, who, like Saul, who was named after King Saul, was being threatened. His life was wanting, they were wanting to take his life away. David, like Saul, had to flee to the desert. And it's in that place that God worked in his life to prepare him to be king. Look at Moses, who fled after killing a man to the desert, where he became a shepherd in the wilderness before he ever was asked by God to lead the people out of Egypt. God uses the loneliness and disappointment of those desert seasons in our life to deepen our trust in him. Because the desert is where we find him removing the idols that we look to for security instead of him. Just think about what that looked like for Saul. He lost the respect of his peers. He lost the authority of his position. He even lost freedom in being a Roman citizen. I mean, all the things that he once looked to for security and purpose and value and worth, gone. And in their place, he had to learn to put his hope in Christ alone. In the second letter of Corinthians, we actually learn that not only were the Jews against him, that... Much like they did with Jesus, they have conspired with Rome to come together against one man, Saul. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, Saul recounting the events and acts that we've just looked at. In verse 32 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, this is a a Roman ruler, the king, was guarding the city of of the Damascus, the Damascenes, the Damascus people, in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and so escaped his hands. As Saul moved into Damascus, he moved from being the hunter to become the hunted. Not only was he a target for the Jews, but now the Roman rulers have conspired along with them. Everyone has rallied against Saul. But they are no match for the risen Christ. Saul learned to trust his life in the one who gave his life. He's putting his hope in Christ. And we see here that the Lord provides a way. That just by chance, like 350 promises fulfilled in one person, just by chance, there was somebody who had a house who lived on the wall of the city. And in that house was a window in which Paul could be lowered. And it just happened to be a house of one of his disciples who could rescue him. So that he could then make his way to Jerusalem, where he had hoped to find some comfort and security in fellow believers there. Let's look at that. Chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now once again, when Saul enters into Jerusalem, he faces yet another disappointment. He's rejected by the very people he had hoped to find refuge in the disciples did not believe him and if you think about it you really can't blame them right saul doesn't have a very good track record at this point and for all they know he's posing to be a christian in order to identify other christians so that he can take them and throw them in prison no one believes saul's conversion is real no one except Barnabas. Now, we met Barnabas in chapter 4, and we learned there that Barnabas is not actually his real name. It's a nickname. The apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And once again, we can see why in this passage. Verse 27 says, he took hold of Saul and brought him to the apostles. Another way of saying this, Paul took Saul under his wing. Barnabas took Saul under his wing. He he leveraged the trust that he had with the other apostles so that he could help the other apostles learn to trust in Saul. Barnabas then recounts everything that Saul experienced. He talked about how Saul had met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He talked about how Saul had been a, a bold witness, having talked to Christ, having been taught by Christ, having then proclaimed that Christ is the Son of God all throughout Damascus. But as I'm reading this and thinking about it for this morning, I'm thinking, how does he know that? Barnabas doesn't live in Damascus. He was not there on the Damascus road. How does he know that? I think Barnabas knew all the details because he was willing to listen to Saul's story. When everyone else was avoiding any contact with the man, Barnabas invited a conversation. He gave Saul a chance to tell his story when no one else would. And I think we've all experienced from time to time that sometimes the greatest and most encouraging thing you could do for someone in need is listen to their story. Before you make a judgment, see what's on their heart. I don't know about you, but very often my first impressions are not very good. I judge people based on clothes they wear, the job they have. We can judge people based on the color of their skin. But unless we know their story, we have no right to judge. Bartimaeus was willing to listen to Saul's story. And after having heard his story, having been filled with the Spirit and having the conviction of the Spirit that the story was true. Saul and Barnabas then walked into the apostles and Barnabas stood up for his now new friend. Look at what he says in verse 28. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But they, too, were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit as it continued to increase. Saul preached Jesus in Jerusalem just like he did in Damascus. He just picked up where he last left off. Speaking boldly in the synagogues, again proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Very likely preaching those very same sermons about how Jesus fulfilled all the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament. But once again, he was met with the same results. The people he was trying to save wanted to kill him. They wanted to take his life. So he's taken by some disciples to Caesarea, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And from there, he likely was put on a ship and shipped off to Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Tarsus is where Saul was born. It's his hometown. It's where he went to find refuge. And meanwhile, we learn that the the church in Jerusalem and and Judea and and Galilee and Samaria and all that the the gospel had spread continued to to grow and to flourish. They're enjoying a season of peace. They're being encouraged in their faith. It says that they live in the awe of God with hearts of worship. That's how it would describe the fear of the Lord. They live in the awe of God with hearts of worship of worship because their heart is afraid to worship anything more than worshiping Jesus as the risen Christ. They fear a life where God does not reign supreme, which is why they find comfort in the Holy Spirit, because they find that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient, that they can put their hope in him and he can hold them up. And that's what they believe to be true and they are courage and strengthened but as we finish up this morning i'd like to point out an interesting fact of this passage and what we know happens from here that we don't often consider and it's this once saul is shipped off to tarsus based on what we have in the biblical record we do not hear from him for another eight to ten years I want you to think about that. Once Saul is shipped off to Tarsus, we don't hear from him for another 8 to 10 years. So by all accounts, at this point in the story, his ministry is a failure. His message has been silenced. And I want you to just put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment and think about how he might feel. I want you to consider what you would feel like If you, in all your zeal to proclaim the message of Christ, a a saving message of hope and salvation, is met with such opposition that they won't only listen to what you have to say, they want to silence what you have to say by killing you. Chances are, not to that magnitude, but to some degree or another, we've all faced disappointments in the midst of trying to be faithful. Raising our kids as best as we know how, only to see them make some really tough, bad choices. Investing in our marriages and and investing in our spouse only to find that our spouse has betrayed us. Being devoted to our job only to find out one day that you've been let go from your job unexpectedly. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by devastating news that we didn't see coming, whether it's a a report from a doctor, a letter from an attorney. If we're honest, we probably wonder, why am I working so hard to do what is right when everything seems to be going wrong? Maybe that's how Saul felt in this moment. But I want to remind you, based on what we see in our passage this morning, sometimes, In fact, I would say oftentimes God does some of his best work in seasons of disappointment. In those dry seasons of life is where he wants to draw us close to him. So I want to finish up with, I think, three truths that come from this passage that help us understand how to remain faithful in the midst of hard times. The first one is this. When you're in a hard place... Learn to preach to yourself. When you're in a hard place, learn to preach to yourself. Just this past week, I had something unexpected happen in my life that rocked my world. And in that moment, in that moment, as I received this news, I was paralyzed in fear and overcome. Anxiety. Yep, that's right. Your pastor, your pastor in that moment was overcome by fear and overwhelmed by anxiety. Because all I could do is think about all the worst case scenarios of how this was going to play itself out. And it wasn't good. And I was overwhelmed. And then I had to learn from the lesson of the sermon I was preaching this week. And I had to preach to myself. I had to remind myself that God is my Father. He's my Deliverer. That He is a righteous judge. He's the one in whom I find refuge. He is my strength in my time of need. He is with me. He is for me. <laughs> I belong to Him, and therefore I will trust in Him. And I had to preach that sermon to myself over and over again. (laughs) In fact, when I get into those places, that's often how, and the only way that I can go to sleep at night, is preaching that sermon over and over again. And so if you find yourself in a really hard place, let me encourage you, to preach to yourself preach the things that you know to be true about god because left to ourself we're going to find ourselves consumed by every possible scenario of how this could go wrong instead of pointing our attention on the one in whom does all things right and we can rest in him so preach to yourself and listen if you're ever in a place where you can't do that and trust me i've been there too and i've called my friend carrie and i've called my friend doug And I've called my friend Mark and I've said, hey, guys, I need you to tell me truths that I need to know in a moment where I can't find them on my own. Will you preach to me? So the first thing you can do when you're in a hard place is preach to yourself. And if you can't go there, ask somebody to do it for you, to remind you of things that are true. The second thing is this. When you're in a dry season, don't hide away Always draw near. Don't hide away. Always draw near. You see, isolation, hear me clearly, isolation is your enemy. Loneliness is filled with lies. God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And I want you to understand when he's making that promise, it's not to be translated, I'll tell you what, I'll, from God, I'll meet you halfway. <laughs> All right. Draw near to me and I'll meet you halfway. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, you'll find this promised in the midst of a rebuke. In James's letter, he says this, submit to God, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What he's saying is let go of the things that keep you from clinging to God. Fear the Lord by refusing to worship anything more than you worship Him. The Lord never leaves you. He's inviting you to return to Him. Now, we may forsake Him, but He will not forsake us. So let go of the idols that you cling to for security and find your hope in Christ alone. Don't draw away. Draw near. Finally, the third thing is tell someone your story. Tell someone your story, which means we need to be a church who's willing to listen to those stories that people need to tell. We talked at one point about having a church filled with Phillips. Well, I think from our passage this morning, we can safely say along with the Phillips, we need some Barnabases, right? We need some people who are willing to listen to the stories of other people who people who can create a safe place. For those stories to be told, kind of a, a judgment free zone. I just want to know your story. I don't care what everybody else says. I don't care what everything you've done. Tell me your story. Because here's the reality for every single person in this room, we all, to a person, find healing when we tell our story. There's no exceptions to that. We all find healing. When we tell our story, that's why James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be what? Healed. We have to be honest about our struggles. We have to confront our our fears and our doubts. We need to speak them out loud. And the more we hold on to these things and I'm willing to, to tell our story, the more those things will control our heart. And probably more damaging than that is controlling our mind so that that's all we can see and that's the way we view life. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't even know what the issue is in my heart until I tell my story. I've got to speak it out loud. I've got to almost hear myself talk. I need to have a conversation to be able to understand what the Lord is trying to speak to me in my life. We all need a safe place To work through hard things in life. And I think that safe place is the shared conviction that we all have one thing in common. We all need Jesus. That's the safe place where we can tell our story. Because that's also the place where we find redemption. We find hope. We find restoration. And so we need to tell our story. So let God rescue you from a hard place. Preach to yourself. Draw near to God. Let others in. Let the words of Christ spoken through the power of his word invade your heart. And let that truth transform how you see life and the circumstances that you find yourself in. Because very often those seasons of disappointment are the very places that God will do his greatest work. Because. When we feel like everything around us is failing us, we search for something that promises it won't. And there's only one place you can go where that's true. And that's the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we close with this song this morning, this song is intended to be a proclamation of truth in your life. Okay? This song that we're going to sing is going to speak to the power in the name of Jesus that you and I must live by. This is the truth that we cling to. This is the sermon we want to preach to ourselves. A lot of times the sermons we need to hear are the songs that we need to sing. Alright? So this is a song you need to sing when you need to preach to yourself. When you find yourself in a hard place. Let's do that together. If you would stand. Christ is alive and well. It is made available to you through the work of the Spirit as a child of God. So preach to yourself. Draw near to the Lord. Invite others in. And proclaim the message that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the hope we have. Be secure in that hope. Amen? Amen. Have a great day.